Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, RJ Heyman and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Ooh, Delali. It is good to see the two of you back today. That's that's a Robin Hood reference from Disney. I thought Did you have a good stroke? <laughs> the fox. Oodalali, oodalali, golly, what a day. That's not up there in the pantheon of animated Disney classics. I think that's pretty far down the list. But it should no, wait for the deep cut. Incredible. Deep cut, Dave. It's sure. A, it's amazing. Battle on the fox and, and the hound. Listen, I like Oodalali. I've always thought it would make a good opening to anything. So, Oodalali to both of you. <laughs> How are you doing in, uh, in Texas land? We are good. We're good, right, RJ? Amazing. Got through Thanksgiving. So good. Yeah, amazing. I'm exhausted. Did you, yeah. did you get through Thanksgiving? <laughs> I want to hear how amazing you are, Sarah. I want to hear. I want to hear because oh. last time you talked about what your plans were for Thanksgiving, didn't you? So, so yeah. please give us an yeah. update on your amazing yes. store-bought day of thanks. Yeah. So we went to New Orleans, and uh, as as usual with Airbnb, the house was much smaller than it appeared on the internet. And my dad said as soon as we got there that we would never be doing this again. Um, but we totally... What, you mean like getting together? <laughs> no, just like being in a super small house with yeah. like a four and a seven-year-old. My brother and I are almost a decade apart. So when my just dad is around my, my four-year-old and seven-year-old, he's like, you had them so close together. They're so loud <laughs> so yeah anyway it was uh it was good though we went out you know i didn't cook uh there was jazz i mean i can't complain hmm. how about you rj it was wonderful all my brothers came in with their families uh, and so and my mom was here and so we had 16 uh we roasted a turkey i smoked a brisket we did cream corn for the first time which was delish all the yeah. little nieces and nephews got together uh, and come, you know, and I preached on Thanksgiving and I was in church on Sunday. So come Monday morning, daddy was pretty wiped out. So I've been, uh, I've been nursing a low grade cold ever since, oh, uh, no. which is great. Um, but which I think I passed along to my wife because I'm just, I'm a, I'm a giver. What can I say? I like to share. <laughs> um, <laughs> um as uh, and uh, by the way, thanks for asking you too. But I had a really delightful <laughs> Thanksgiving. Moving on to our first article. Um, uh, yeah, I know. Actually, you know, if you do have kids in the car, I don't think we've ever done this, but uh, we're going to talk about sex and uh, at some length here because the Atlantic Monthly uh, earmuffs earmuffs little toddlers. Um, the Atlantic Monthly put out a super long uh, cover story called the the Sex Recession. Uh, and it is really about why is it that people today, especially younger people, are having so much less sex than they used to. But the basic premise is that our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation. But despite that, American teenagers and young adults are having less sex than ever. From 1991 to 2017, the CDC study survey found the percentage of high school students who'd had intercourse dropped from 54 get this, to 40%. 
Wow. That's in, in the course of, uh, you know, 25 years. Meanwhile, U.S. teen pregnancy rate has plummeted to a third of its modern high, what it was in the 90s. Most of us, of course, still think that other people are having a lot more sex than they actually are. And, of course, experts attribute, and the article goes through all various theories that might be sort of contributing very thorough. to this decline in libido. And I'm not going to talk about all of them, um, but I will, the, the list that she gives, Kate Julian is responsible for this epic piece of journalism. She says, uh, in the course of her research, I was told the sex recession might uh, be the consequence of the hookup culture, of crushing economic pressures, of surging anxiety rates, of psychological frailty, of widespread antidepressant use, of streaming television, of environmental estrogens leaked by plastics. Of dropping That's testosterone levels of chemtrails. <laughs> it's chemtrails. I'm so glad you said leaked by plastic. <laughs> leaked by plastic. I was like, says. where is this going? Way to blame the petrochemical industry. <laughs> of digital porn, of dating apps, of option paralysis. Of helicopter parents, of careerism, of smartphones, of the news cycle, of information overload generally, of sleep deprivation, of obesity. Oh my God, I need a nap. Name oh a modern blight. Oh my God, I can't blight. breathe. <laughs> <laughs> name, name a modern blight and someone somewhere is ready to blame it for messing with the modern libido. And of course, exhibit A is Japan uh, that has the lowest, I think, birth rate in the world at this point, and it's got this whole culture of uh, what they're called grass-eating uh, men, herbivore men. Uh, you <laughs> the know, worst thing I've ever heard. I know, reclusive men. It's it's actually like 30% of young men in Japan what? have sort of retreated into anime uh, and uh, just have no interest in interpersonal relationships of any kind, apparently. But then you also learn about things from Philip Zimbardo. They talk about procrasturbation. That's a new word for me. Hashtag. Uh, uh, hashtag. It's a, <laughs> which he thinks is responsible for sort of the man session. But let's get to the juicy parts or the less juicy parts. I don't know how you want to describe it. I Even so, I was amazed by how many 20-somethings were deeply unhappy with the sex and dating landscape. Over and over, people asked me whether things had always been this hard. Despite the diversity of their stories, certain themes emerged. And one of the themes is that people are just coupling off, not just later, but less. One recurring theme, predictably enough, was pornography. Less expected was perhaps was the extent to which many people saw their porn life and their sex life as entirely separate things. Mm. Not to mention, we might say, just an actual a given uh, of modern life. Uh, I mean, we're gonna, I'm trying not to talk about the shoulds here, just the what is. An intriguing study published last year in the Journal of Population Economics examined the introduction of broadband internet access at the county-by-county county level and found that its arrival explained 7 to 13% of the teen birth rate decline from 1999 to 2007. So, you know, we the, we're the teen pregnancy rate, I think falling is a, is a, is a good for uh, everyone. And I think the same can be said for the teenage uh, sex rate falling. I mean, uh, independent of any kind of theological or biblical concern, uh, I've just worked with too many teenagers to uh, believe anything otherwise. And yet what's on, going on behind is that teen romantic relationships appear to have grown far, far less common. And uh, what that exactly, what that's down to, again, it's hard to know where to start. The, there's a much lower percentage of teens who go on dates mm -hmm. along, but they also are much less teens who report, uh, you know, things like drinking alcohol, uh, working for pay, going out without one's parents and getting a driver's license. So people are growing up much later. 
These shifts coincide with another major change. Parents increased anxiety about their children's educational economic prospects, i.e. the expectations we foist on teenagers. RJ, you've talked a lot about this before. But it's hard to work in sex when the baseball team practices at 6.30, school starts at 8.15, drama club meets at 4.15, the soup kitchen starts serving at 6, and oh yeah, your screenplay needs completion. Um, he added, there's immense pressure, one of the young men interviewed for the piece, from parents and other authority figures to focus on the self at the expense of relationships. Pressure, quite a few 20-somethings told me, that extends right on through college. Over and over, one professor at Mich University of Michigan, uh, she has written, she says, my undergraduates tell me they try hard not to fall in love during college, imagining that would mess up their plans. Yes. I mean, then, I mean, there's, there's performancism here. Then they say that no one approaches anyone in public anymore. A teacher in Northern Virginia, the dating landscape has changed. If a random guy started talking to uh, me in an elevator, they would, uh, my students would be weirded out. Creeper, get away from me, one woman imagined thinking. Also, anytime we're in silence, we look at our phones, explained her friend, uh, nodding. And then there's those who are so daunted that they don't even make it off the couch. Uh, Julian talks about p people who describe their sex and dating lives as having gone into a deep freeze as a result of the paradox of choice. Uh, you know, that basically there's too many options uh, or phobo, fear of a better option, that you, you, you don't commit to anyone in a relationship because you're afraid there's a sort of a soulmate out there for you. And then last but not least, a new discomfort with nudity. Mm. might stem from the fact that by the mid-1990s, most high schools had stopped requiring students to shower after gym class, which makes sense the less time you spend naked, the less comfortable you are being naked. But people may also be newly worried about what they look like naked. A large and growing body of research reports that for both men and women, social media use is correlated with body dissatisfaction and not feeling comfortable in your own skin, of course, complicates the libido. <sighs> so um, it's very, uh, it's hard, and she surfaces in this, uh, this is me talking, in the piece that it's very hard for, I guess, even my generation not to just look at this and be like, oh depressing. Um, the degree to which we've prioritized work over love, the degree to which we are living virtual lives that don't involve any kind of vulnerability is not just, uh, you know, sad, but it maybe has a little bit of tragic dimension to it. And the people that she interviews seems to all agree, but feel stuck in this uh, situation. So, uh, I don't know. Sex is a, clearly a very highly charged topic, but um, there's a lot going on here. Uh, what do you think about this article or what do you think about what I just read? I have several thoughts. <laughs> oh, um, really? I do. I mean, the, the, so one thing I would say, uh, and I don't know that she touches on this because in truth, this article is too long for me to read the entire thing. But um, I have experienced some in in counseling people that because there was such a um, sexual, big sexual revolution in the baby boomer generation and sex was perhaps maybe talked about more than people wanted it to be as they were children and they were perhaps exposed to things that they didn't want to be exposed to, that that has added to discomfort. So not to blame any parents out there, but I do, I do want to name that just as something I've experienced in counseling with people. Um, 
this reminds me so much of a piece that was in, uh, I think, The Atlantic as well. It's been within the past, it's been more than five years, probably less than 10, about teenagers having less sex and about how there had been this big response in terms of teenage girls to um, cling to deeply romanticized, uh, which is not a new thing for teenage girls, but um, deeply romanticized novels. So the Twilight series, right, was a way to experience a boyfriend that was much safer, um, perhaps, and, you know, based on the the information they're given. And that, um, you know, those those books, they t- I don't know if you've read them, but it takes a while for anybody to have sex. Um, it also sort of played into this idea that they didn't immediately have to have sex, which, you know, for, for a long time, I mean, when I was a teenager, that was the conversation was everyone's just having sex and there's no relationship. And, you know, that was what people were complaining about. And I'm from Mississippi, so everyone was getting pregnant too. I mean, it just, you know, went hand in hand. Um, the the other thing I want to say, just because, just from a pastoral perspective, because I think people are going to hear this and it is going to cause them anxiety. I mean, it causes me anxiety, you know, is that, um, oh, this is going to sound like a should, is that this is something that we should deal with. Sarah, one of the things she does mention is that the state of sex education is so terrible and that it either t- doesn't take ser- sex seriously at all or it takes it far too seriously. And so all of this is going on, and the pornography especially, no right. one has figured out the vocabulary. I think c- Christians are actually some of the only people that have the vocabulary to talk about it. And yet even they have a way of doing it. And I th- I'm not sure the way that um, it's, it seems to create a whole lot of fallout too. But the, the refrain that she gets from all the young people is that they're confused, they're unhappy, and mm-hmm. they're dying for intimacy, but mm-hmm. not able to risk vulnerability. I also feel like, and then I'll let RJ talk. Um, I also Thank feel you. like... Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, sex in, in, the, in terms of being with someone that you're in love with and intimacy and sex on an app are like, it's like saying eating and throwing up are the same thing. (laughs) Like it's not even close to being the same thing, you know? And so, because it, it, and I get, and I, I mean, it makes sense why this is happening because sex in an intimate relationship requires more of you and and you also get so much more in return right yeah. so anyway well they she says that bad sex is actually one of the reasons why this is happening which yeah. frankly commitment is a, is a big it, 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 contributor to actual sex being good but right. rj let's let's talk about it do it what rj do well the first thing i just want to name is that all three of us are married um, yes. And have been for a significant amount of time. And so I want to uh, call out the fact that there are probably people who are listening to this podcast who are not married, who would very much like to be married. Um, and I just remember um, a good friend of mine when I was in New York who uh, was single and wanted to be in a relationship and, and would just talk about how and had been and, and sort of in and out sometimes. But he would see couples walking down the street hand in hand and it just felt like an entirely different universe. You know, and, and, and it's true. It, it's... It's not something you can make happen. That that falling in love with someone, being in a relationship, is is always sort of a miracle and a surprise. And yes, there's something there's putting yourself out there. But even putting yourself out there, like you you, you need to wait. God sort of drops someone in your lap, you know, but in his in his grace and in his time. And so I just want to name that. Um, 
There's so many surprising things about this article. Uh, I loved when she talked to that professor who teaches the class in Northwestern called Marriage 101 to undergraduates, mm-hmm. which apparently is like the most popular course in Northwestern and routinely fills up in a matter of minutes, that people have this incredible hunger. Young people have this incredible hunger to learn more about relationships, about intimacy, about sex, about what goes into sort of a lot, that it seems like... Um, sort of an undiscovered, strange country. Um, uh, I thought it was incredibly striking what she said about, I mean, Sarah, I'm not sure you got to this part, but guess what year in America was the number one year in terms of the rate of teenage women having children? I mean, I would guess sometime in the 80s. 1957. 1957, because apparently sort of dating culture and this whole terminology of like going steady and having a long-term boyfriend was in reaction to all these men that died in World War II and there should be being a man shortage in America in the 50s, right? So we think this is a, that teenage sex is kind of a new thing. It's not a new thing at all. Uh, it's been going on. I was, I was shocked by that. Uh, but in terms of the declining rates of teenagers having sex, as the father of two teenage boys, part of me, part of me is deeply thankful for that. I do also think uh, that the, the prioritization of economic well-being and sort of career achievement over relationships is 100% a real thing. Couples that decide to live like a plane trip apart because it's better for yeah. one of their careers. The article also reminded me of this series of podcasts I heard on Radiolab recently called In the Know, which were produced by this young single woman. And they're sort of around issues of sex and consent and a lot of hurt feelings she's had. And a lot of times she's felt like, and other women she talked to felt like they had sex when they didn't really want to, but they did it to sort of make a man happy or get him off her back. And it wasn't, it wasn't rape, it wasn't uh, abuse, but it wasn't entirely consensual. And to hear her longing for someone who really knew her, who could, could, who could read her emotions a little bit for the space to talk about the sexual experiences they were having as opposed to these one-night stands. And it does, not to sound like super Christian-y, but it makes sense why sex is always best in the context of a committed relationship because... It, it, it is wonderful, as you said, Sarah, and, and beautiful, but it also is complicated. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not good. But to have a safe space to talk about that, like, I enjoyed that. I didn't enjoy that. Can we try this? This wasn't so good. Sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it's just you're tired or, or who knows what it is. Um, but that sex is always best in a context where you can have open, honest, safe conversations about kind of how it's going, because that also builds emotional intimacy, which is a huge part of yeah. the uh, huge part of the experience. So I just listening to that podcast and sort of mourning for her because um, she wanted to she wanted someone who knew her in a relationship. She also wanted someone who could read her mind, which having been married for almost twenty years now that doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, like you never stop having to talk about what's actually going on. So I'm um, just to be disabused of some of her um, fantasies about what the perfect relationship would look like, the twilight relationship. Anyway, I've monologued for a while, but it, this was a deeply <laughs> affecting article. What was interesting to me in, in what you just said was this idea that like, you know, ideally if people have sex, they have sex with someone that they feel safe with. And in this culture of sort of proclaiming things safe, right? That's a, that's a big thing we do now. This is a safe space. People are safe people. This is a safe thing. When that's so often not true, 
Mm. You know, usually mm. safe spaces aren't safe for everyone. I mean, mm. usually safe safe people, we don't really know them. And and there there's this uh I don't know, I'm sure it has something to do with the internet and we feel like we know everyone, but there's this sense of like um I don't know, safety is the new cool. Like it used to be like, you know, people would be intimate because they felt like they were cool with each other. And now it's like, oh, but this is safe. Like we met on this app, we've made this agreement, it's safe. And we don't know if it's safe. It's not safe. You don't, if you don't know each other, it's not safe. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's almost like you've, it's that Aziz Ansari thing where there's like this unspoken contract between people where they feel like, oh, well, this is what we do and this is how this works. And then as in that case, she was so profoundly uncomfortable and felt like everything was kind of a train wreck. Mm. And then wasn't able to really verbalize that, right? Except on the internet. So, well, if anything, it sounds to me like the the whole um, culture that we're living in right now almost seems designed to kill the libido, and that's a that's a strange thing for also a culture that seems to venerate sex and se- sexual prowess in a way that's uh, you know just a, about enoughness and uh, justification and all the mm-hmm. things we like to talk about. So. Um, yeah, I, I I can't help but think that I mean I deal with all these college students and it's easy sure. for me as an as a married person to say you guys need to you know uh, prioritize relationships over career. That's they look at you like you're insane when you say that. Um, but also you know Kate Julian in the article says well no one ever died of not getting laid but they do need a job to survive and I'm not sure that's actually true. Yeah, I'm <laughs> at not least sure that's in the way either. that people think. I think that no. we push back against that. Because what we're not we're not we're talking about careerism, not just career or or even just the word career job uh, provision. That is uh, it's just a it's just a huge unfortunately it is a mammoth delusion about what's important in life, as as uh, you know deduced not only from the Bible but from every single psychologist and pastoral person I've ever met, and that doesn't just have to do with romantic relationships. I see it when people move out of neighborhoods where they're close with people or out of places where there are great churches for sake of job, and they become very unhappy because they've lost their community and the, their relationships, and so as as much of a buzz it is as much as a sort of a cliche as it becomes in especially Protestant churches about relationships and relationship with God and there's a deep insight there that's not um, that's not going away just because we've reconceived things. Um, but I want to talk, I want to move on from this only because we could talk about this every week and maybe we'll come back to it. But because the second article this week is another one that's actually about this uh, aversion to vulnerability, but it coincides perfectly. It's by Ruth Whitman. And she writes in the New York Times, everything is for sale now, even us. She says, and she says, almost everyone I know now has some kind of hustle, whether job or side or vanity project. Share my blog post, buy my book, click on my link, follow me on Instagram, visit my Etsy shop, donate to my Kickstarter, crowdfund my heart surgery. It's as though we are all working in Walmart on an endless Black Friday of the soul. Oh, what a line. Um, Being sold to can be socially awkward for sure, but when it comes to corrosive self-doubt, being the seller is a thousand times worse. The constant curation of a saleable self demanded by the new economy can be a special hellspring of anxiety. And what she's really talking about is the gig economy. Um, The trick of selling yourself is doing it well is to act like you aren't doing it at all. As if this is simply how you like to unwind in the evening by sharing your views on pasta sauce with your 567,000 followers. 
Seeing the slick charm of successful online influencers spurs me to download e-courses on how to, quote, crack Instagram or, quote, develop my personal brand story. But as soon as I hand over my credit card details, I am flooded with vague self-disgust. I instantly abandon the courses and revert to my usual business model, badgering and guilting my friends across a range of online platforms, employing the personal brand story of, please... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the sad truth is that many of us would probably make more money stacking shelves or working at the drive through than selling our quote-unquote thing. The real prize is deeper, more existential. What this is really about for many of us is a roaring black hole of psychological need. After a couple decades of constant advice to follow our passions and live our dreams, for a certain type of relatively privileged modern freelancer, nothing less than total self-actualization at work now seems enough. So we shackle our self-worth to the success of these projects. The book or blog post or range of crotcheted stuffed penguins becomes a proxy for our very soul. Ooh. Hashtag seculosity. Hashtag (laughs) seculosity. In many ways, like I've got to do this promotion. I feel like I'm haranguing. Pre-order, pre-order. Pre-order, by the way. I mean, I'm writing something about this piece because I found it so uh, searing personally, but it's like, you know, did I mention that I have a book for sale? And it actually is talking about these (laughs) very dynamics. And yet that does, does that matter at all? No, not really. Because- So meta. uh, Please buy this thing because I am, uh, it is is a existential- a trial that is going on nonstop in which it's Sarah you talked about it when you're the preacher's uh, self-worth is up for grabs in the pews every Sunday uh, in social media all of a sudden everyone has to become an evangelist uh, for oneself and none of us are actually that confident in what we're selling because we know ourselves and so it becomes just a, 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 a hellspring of anxiety is what she says <laughs> uh, anyway what, what do you guys think about this I read this piece yesterday um, by a priest that we work with, uh, Jonathan Adams, and he talked he talked so well actually about. I mean, her piece was not ris- written from a Christian vantage point, but I f- I feel this profoundly as a Christian about how he was preaching about grace to the congregation, and then but there was part of him that wondered if it was actually true for him. And he talked about the difference between being a sinner and being a failure. And that he knew that God redeemed sinners, but does God redeem failures too? Mm. And that kind of rings in me when I read this piece, because I can I can get on board with the center stuff, but the, but our culture is so performance based. I mean, there's I, I cannot tell you how many days I wish I was some of the women I know in my life who are not on social media at all, who have like normal jobs where they're not. You know, I mean, I love writing and I love preaching and I love these things, but but it gets very muddled with like the promotional stuff and the worth stuff. And like, I have to remind myself, I mean, it was so powerful for me to read that yesterday from a colleague that like, you know, God loves failures too, you know, and he saves us from the need to side hustle for our worth, you know? I'm not that self-promotional. I think it's safe you're to not. say. You're not. No. Yeah, I no, don't, you're not. But I think I've been thinking about that You're an oversharer, but you're not self-promotional. Well, thank you for um, that <laughs> underhanded. I'm not even sure what that was. Uh, I, I tried to be affirming of myself for once, but thank you for saving me from that, Sarah Kingdom. <laughs> Uh, no, that's exactly right. And and I've beaten myself up a little bit about actually. I'm like, why? 
why don't you believe in yourself more? Like, why don't you put yourself out there more? Why don't you pr promote yourself more? And I think what it really boils down to is that it's not, it's not righteousness. It's fear, of course. It's like, mm. because I'm pretty sure that if I tried to sell, no one would buy. And then I would know the truth. You know, I would know the truth that I'm not actually worth anything, you know? Um, and I, I would much rather have someone, uh, I, I, I'm a hype man. I'd rather have someone hype me than hype myself. You know, I'd rather someone like what I was doing because I just liked it, not because I told them to. But, um, so I don't know. So this piece didn't hit me. Like, I, I, I just can't imagine spending a lot of time on social media. Like, yes, I flip through Facebook every so often, but I'm not, that's just not something that's enticing to me. But it's mainly, a lot of it is just, um, yeah, it, it's the same existential angst it just manifests itself differently it's not like i feel this need necessarily to justify my existence it's more that i'm scared that my existence will be necessarily um delegitimized you know if i if i seek to self-promote so um anyway yeah i mean i've been told i have to do all this now uh if, if you want to have a book out and you go through the trouble of it, it it's not even worth doing it's like a first use of the law type thing it's like this is the yeah, way the world works this is just how it you is just, you got to do it yeah either get on board or just don't write and i sort of like well i don't know i'm just, you can be idealistic and you could say well it shouldn't be that way so then i'm going to insist it's interesting in, in thinking though because i i was trying to think about i when in, in writing about this yesterday am i not self-promotional because i don't want to be narcissistic or self-involved or am I like you RJ and I what I the reason I'm not self-promotional is because I don't want uh, to be rejected yes and I yes. don't want the judgment of the law and yes. probably a little I mean it's, it's difficult because we we all everyone's promoting something and we're all uh it just are you promoting you know if you're if you're on the beach evangelizing people for Jesus you're talking about that which is not you, but if you're promoting your book, even if it's talking about Jesus, you're 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 promoting yourself. And so, unless you're slightly narcissistic, it, that's why this current age, I think, is a playground for narcissists. Because in order to thrive, you have to self-promote. In order to self-promote effectively, you have to you actually have to believe. You have to have pure confidence in the product. And in order to have pure confidence in the product, which is you, or the message, which is you, you basically have to be deluded. And so it's. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and, and that, you know, I, I was I worried about saying judgmental, but you just trumped me so hard. Like it was, oh, I love it. well, well I'm, ju I'm judging <laughs> myself. I, and I, I, I think that God has mercy on all of us. And the other thing is it can actually be an act of faith as anyone who's done any kind of evangelism knows, um, to say, please, to put yourself out there, to be the supplicant yes. is to give up power. Yes. Is to um, is to be be to it, it is the Christian position. It is the you know we're on our knees at the Eucharist. You know we're we're receiving, and that's that's where we actually are in life. And so there, it's it's something akin to faith. I think um, that's the only that's the positive gloss I would put on it. And that it, but but it's interesting that we're not willing to be sup, a supplicant for love, but we are willing to be a supplicant for. Uh, not just career reward, but ego and yeah. enough enoughness, and that to me speaks volumes, and it, it kind of nails me to the wall to a place where I actually am on my knees and saying, uh, "Lord, I, I really, uh, I really hope what you're saying about forgiveness is true." Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I really do think about this like every day, and I was thinking about a, a piece that I wrote. Um, 
a couple of months back that got a, a very big response. I wrote it for a denominational publication mm-hmm. and it got a pretty big response and uh, a really angry response. You know, people used four letter words on the internet. People said that I would never get another church job. Like hell. But it was, huh? Like hell. <laughs> hell. No, much worse. Word. I was there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the B word, uh, which I am, but um, have five not been letters. called that on the internet. Uh, so yeah, five letters. So, I sent it to my bishop because I I sent the piece to my bishop and I just said, um, and we, I would say we have like a really good bishop and he's very pastoral. And I sent it to him and I was like, Hey, um, I've gotten a lot of, of pretty people, people have loved this and people have been really, really awful about this. And he sent me back this quote that uh, a lot of people know if they've done Brene Brown's work about being the man in the arena and that these are the people on the stands and they have not put themselves Mm. out there and they're in the arena. And also like as a Christian, I can't hear about being in an arena without thinking about Christians who were put into arenas Mm, that very much popped into my brain. You will die. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so I try not to like comfort myself with martyrdom, (laughs) but, but I know that when, I mean, I know the feeling of when God has put something on my heart and, and I, and I have, I can't not share it. I mean, that's, I know that feeling and, and I have kind of tried to let go. I mean, that's the best best case scenario for me in this struggle yeah. is to just let go of what the response is. Right. Yeah. So amen. Amen to that. And and I think sometimes you are anyone who's involved in this kind of creative putting yourself in the arena thing is it knows that feeling of inspiration where you where mm. something is f- flowing is the right word, but it's also your um you can't not say it. And it's, uh, you know, that gets people in trouble, but it's, it's, uh, it is a way that, that I think we use our gifts and all that stuff. So I'm a, I'm a, but, but I, at the same time, reading this right before I have to go into this big cycle of self promotion, um, made me want to, uh, <coughs> vomit. But yeah, uh, when are you going on cold air and fresh air? That's what I want to know. I yeah, exactly. Cold air. Exactly. Yeah. That's circulosity. Mm, huh. Buy the book, pre order, makes bestseller, right? Um, <laughs> See, I'm terrible at it. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go from trip, self-promotion trip, trip, trip. to... Uh, <laughs> actually, hey, I just got the layouts. Uh, and they are... They're pretty badass, I have to say. Sweet. They've done an amazing job, and I it's That's seeing awesome. it in, in laid out in a cool way is kind of kind of cool. Um, let's go from uh, that to something much, uh, you know, more I guess serious. Um, <laughs> yes, it's been a little light. Let's move into. Yeah, we really haven't talked about material. Much. Let's talk yes. about crying in the workplace. Thank again. God. Uh, about Sarah, time, Sarah. Well, let's, we're going to end with something about. Um, you know, accidentally killing someone. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but that's what we're talking about. What we are. So I opened up my uh, my social media feed today, and it's not often that I open it up and see that I have a friend who has a piece in the Guardian. But that happened this morning. Um, it's a guy named David Peters. He's actually a priest in our diocese. He's actually I just found out this week going to do a church plant, um, which is amazing. But um, David is a veteran a of. Um, <laughs> David's a veteran from the uh, uh, war in Iraq, and he uh, wrote this piece. This was not what I expected David to write. He's written a lot about being a veteran. He's done a tremendous amount of work towards helping veterans, um, and he actually spoke at the Veterans Day service uh at my husband's church a few weeks back. So I'd, I've just sort of been around him recently, but 
Anyway, this piece is not about that in a lot of ways. Uh, The title of it is What Happens to Your Life After You Accidentally Kill Someone? Mm. Um, And David tells this very sad story about uh, being a young man in college and um, getting into uh, a car accident. And, uh, you know, he was sober and, you know, not driving fast, but got into a car accident that ended up um, killing this woman. And he writes so powerfully about sort of the things that have helped him through this. But he also says, which I think is a thing that anyone who has catastrophic um, sin in their lives, which if we're honest, we all do, but we, many of us have these very powerful moments. Um, he he talks about how that never leaves you. He, he never, he is never not aware of the fact that um, this is in his history. So I just wanted to read this bit about sort of the night that it happened. He wrote, I went back to the dormitory that night. My roommate was there, shaken, but not badly injured. I slept, and the next morning, the dean of men came to see me. I was still lying in bed. He pulled a chair up and opened his giant King James Bible. He read a passage from the Hebrew Bible about the mysterious cities of refuge, ancient safe havens for people who had accidentally killed someone. The perpetrator would flee the avenging family of the deceased, escape to a city of refuge, and live there until the Jewish high priest died. When the high priest died, accidental killers could go back to their homes, no longer at risk of revenge murder." Um, And he talks about how he wasn't really sure why this was being read to him at that point, but um, goes on later to talk about in his own life how he has found these cities of refuge um, to to deal with this terrible event in his history. So I I thought it was an incredibly powerful piece. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I actually wrote something about this a couple of years ago because it it is so, there's a community. I mean, there's a couple online communities, I think, where people go to talk about this. And it's one of these, um, we, we talked about the difference between applied empathy and actual forgiveness. And um, this is a situation, you know, where we really run into the limits of forgiveness, but, uh, or at least we run the limits of applied empathy. Uh, well, by that, I mean, um, usually when we're forgiving someone, we find a way to figure out, um, you know, th- their psychological makeup sort of and, and their background. And if you really understood this about so-and-so, well, then you'd understand why they did what they did. And to kind of diminish the infraction, the uh, transgression, the crime in some way by, you know, pointing to cir- cultural s- circumstances, what, what have you. And that's actually um, wonderful, but it's it's empathy. It's not actual forgiveness. And so when um, my brother Simeon talks about this in his Lost Doctrine of Sin class, and he says that one of the difficulties in talking to modern people about sin is the, the idea that you can be, something can be out of your control and you can still be culpable for it. Uh, and in this case, you didn't mean to, you didn't intentionally mean to kill the person. And yet you were responsible. And what does that, it's, if, if you've got a, a terrible mental disorder and people say, well, they, they didn't choose that, therefore it's okay. But, you know, if, if, if you're a parent and your depression causes you not to pay attention to your small children, I mean, there's still a, a real fallout from it. There's, it's not morally neutral. And that's not to say there isn't a, you're not a victim, but the, the, what I'm trying to say is that the 
forgiveness, when we really talk about it, is not just forgiveness for things freely chosen. It's uh, forgiveness that sort of understands that there are debts that a person cannot pay, and there are wounds that will never heal, and there are things out of our control that we are still seem to be culpable for. And this is a, an unfortunate and heart-wrenching example Um but it should be shouted from the rooftops, I think, that with the bravery that David uh, exhibits here, because this is the sort of, um, when we talk about sin and we talk about the forgiveness and the shed blood of Christ and all these things, this is what we're talking about, I think. Um, and it, and again, we, we, we come a lot of times on this podcast, I think, to the end of like, the person's family may not be able to forgive him and he may not be able to forgive himself. But we certainly point to a God who, whose forgiveness surpasses our understanding or our ability to internalize it in any way. That's my hope. I mean, Advent begins in the dark, right? Isn't that what they say? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I kind of said this, but I hope that people don't read this and think, thank God I've never killed anyone accidentally. Because I think everyone kind of has. I mean, I think just by virtue of being in the world and, I mean, the environment, the plastic spoon I use every day for my yogurt. I mean, you know, pick a thing that we're murdering accidentally, the blood diamonds I have on my hand, you know. I mean, it's it, it actually is the, the weight of sin that we all carry. And in some ways, we would be I, well, I'll speak for myself personally. I am a much healthier Christian when I remember that because it explains so much of the pain that I carry, right? Mm. It explains so much of it. And so, I, you know, the last thing I want us to do is to read this and not see ourselves in David's story. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it is absolutely everyone's story it, on some level. Yeah, and when the dean in that moment comes to him and <sighs> reads that passage, but what he ends by saying, he, said, he says to us, David, God has made... A provision yes. for you. Yeah. And he said, I didn't understand at the time, but God has made provision for you. That is what, but God has made provision for you, dear listener, for me, in the midst of all of the things for which we are responsible, but did not uh, mean to do. Um, or for the, the weight, the burden, the huge cost of uh, sin. I don't know. God mm-hmm. has made provision for you is the, is the kind of the announcement of the angels. But RJ, uh, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Well, the part of the article that really resonated with me and, and hit home was just these two sentences sort of towards the end. He says, my own religion, and he's great about sort of calling out this need in other religions, not just Judaism, but Native American religions, different rituals he's been a part of, and, and the fact that this is a universal human need. But he says, um, my own religion, Christianity, is no exception in the importance it places on themes of blood debt. A lot of Christians don't want to talk about that, <laughs> you know, but it's just true, blood debt. Like, again, Brene Brown, you know, she wants to be in a church where there's enough blood on the floor. Uh, then he goes on to say, Christians regard Jesus Christ as having died for our sins, and liturgies and teachings about Christ's atonement on the cross often emphasize a cleansing of sin. This is the part I'll really remember. Especially the kinds of sins and transgressions that are impossible to reconcile with mm-hmm. a simple apology. And I think that goes to what you were saying, Sarah, that I think this is true for me. Sometimes, so much of the time when I'm in church, I'm thinking about, you know, and we're doing the confession. I'm thinking about things that I said to my kids, things that I said to my wife, things that I didn't do, you know, that I should have done, the homeless person I ignored, like things that um, are powerful and meaningful, 
but do kind of feel like they may be able to be reconciled with a simple apology. That I can go to my wife and say, God, I'm so sorry. Or my kids and say, would you please forgive me? Um, and even probably make an excuse, you know, like I was tired or stressed out or something like that. But then that we do all have, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, Sarah, like you talked about. And certainly if, if, if somebody doesn't come to mind that we've done, we've probably experienced something. I think about what you said, your, your therapist friend said that, you know, the therapy business would, would end if adult, uh, if parents of adult children could just learn to say they were sorry, there'd be no more therapists in the world. Um, but that we all have things that just can't be reconciled that we hold and we carry, and we need something bigger than ourselves. We need a word that's bigger than ourselves. We need something, someone to deal with that because we just cannot bear that weight. Mm. Um, and I think that's incredibly powerful. And something for, um, I think, preachers and Christians in particular to remember that when they look out on a congregation, they're meeting someone that every single person carries something like that, even if they don't want to admit it or they're hiding from it. Because of course, that's the natural response. It's like, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to look at it. I'm going to bury it somewhere. And yet, if it can be brought to the light and absolved and, and healed and washed away, like that is when real freedom and joy is found. And that sort of be the, the, the goal, I think, of most um, Christian preaching and ministry and liturgy and is to bring about that kind of um, existential release from the debts we cannot pay. Yeah, and if, if, and if that's impossible, then that then we have uh, the kingdom come to, I think, to look exactly. forward to. I mean, I think exactly. it's the twinkling of an eye, yes. uh, deliverance of, of eternity, which is really our hope not just in these momentary bits of release, which are powerful as and incredibly cathartic and important as they may be. For me, this piece is so is so Advent worthy. I mean, I know that the Guardian wasn't like trying to put this out right before Advent started, but you know, ninety percent of our lives we live in grave doubt that we will be forgiven for even the simplest of things, hmm. and we have these brief moments, these glimpses, David, as you said, where we realize, oh no, this is all true, and that's sort of what we cling to. Um, and and in Advent, I mean, if you're not reading Fleming's book, you're not in Advent. Um, but her book is so clearly uh, about. I'm great at promotion, so David should hire me. But uh, but but it, it, her book is so clearly, you know about how it's not just that we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, it's that we know He came, so we know He will come back. Mm. And that's our hope. And that's where we know um, forgiveness reigns, right? So The rights will made, be made wrong. I mean, uh, someone said, all, all heaven will go quiet as Cain and Abel embrace. Oh my um, gosh. And I think that that's a, that's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. Uh, I will say, as we close here, that uh, last week we we finally, we've re, speaking of Advent, we've relaunched Same Old Song, our lectionary podcast. If you are a preacher or a, uh, anyone who has to you know deal with the lectionary, which is simply the assigned readings that go on a three-year cycle in the Episcopal Church and many other Protestant denominations, uh, check it out. It's You can find all the information on Mockingbird. It's on in iTunes. Search same old song. Aaron Zimmerman and Jacob Smith are doing a great job. It'll be every week on Tuesday, possibly Monday. Uh, but it also works as a great just sort of devotional because those guys really uh, know what they're talking about. And you will hear the thread of grace woven through the scriptures in a really beautiful way. But I hope uh, the two of you have a wonderful beginning of Advent. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks.
Thanks, Dave. You too. See you guys. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. 